In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, there is an interesting note. The Holy Spirit moves John to record for us specifically about this gospel. He mentions in John 20, verse 30, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And that shouldn't surprise us. There's more the Lord did. But I want you to notice the first two words of verse 31, but these, but these. There are many things Jesus did, but these are written. Why? That. Anytime you see that word, it means there's a purpose statement. It means here's why. These were written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. And he is the son of God. And that believing, ye might have life through his name. You see, it's not just so that you would believe that Jesus is who he says he was. No, there's benefit for you as well. There's benefit in that we can have life through his name. And we praise the Lord for that. Many of you may have been to an art gallery before where there's an artist and they choose paintings or pictures of this artist and they they put them on the walls and you walk through there and nobody walks through an art gallery and looks at the paintings and says, wow, they really have great colors of paint here. Or, wow, these canvases are really smooth. The whole purpose is not to focus on the painting alone. It's to show you what the artist can do. And I can't think of an illustration that's adequate enough to try to explain what this verse in verse 31 means. But if you could picture it this way, that the Gospel of John is a gallery of sorts. And these were specifically chosen. That when we walk through the Gospel of John and we see the spotlight on different accounts from the, our Lord's ministry, they are to show us not just about the event, not just about the encounter, but about the artist, if I could say it that way. About the Lord who did it. Who, the Lord who did these things. And that we would understand Him and admire Him and give our lives to Him. All the Bible is special and this verse is special as well because it tells you and me why this book was written. Why these specific things were chosen. And the task may seem daunting, but we're going to attempt this morning and this afternoon. No, just kidding. Just this morning, all right? We're, we're going to attempt this morning to go through the Gospel of John and looking at these pictures of our Lord. And I trust that if you're not saved, the Lord will bring you to salvation by it. Or if you are saved, you'll have a renewed gratitude for what the Lord has done for you. There are three things I want you to see this morning. I want you to see the works recorded in John. I want you to see the Word. We know that our Lord is the living Word. But there's also the written Word. So the works, the Word, and then the why. What's the point? What's the point? First of all, let's look at the works. If you'd go to John chapter 21, please, in verse 24. John 21, verse 24. In closing this book, the Holy Spirit moves John to say, This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written Amen. Many things that our Lord did, but these were written, he says in the previous chapter, for a specific purpose. 
And that purpose is clearly seen right out of the gate. If you would go back to John chapter 1 and begin reading with me in verse 1. In the beginning, that's a good place to start. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that that Word is capitalized on purpose. The Word is logos. It means uh, communication. And what the Bible is telling you this morning is that Jesus is the Word. He's not a Word. He's the Word. But specifically, He's the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus literally is God communicated to man. He is God manifest. We see this in the, in the scriptures, all the things that, that Jesus did. But John 1 teaches us who, who Jesus is and also why he came. Verse 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among, among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But you'll notice, John says, We beheld his glory. We beheld, we saw, Jesus came to be seen. Why? Why would Jesus come to be seen? Well, Jesus said about himself, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, Jesus was God manifest. That word means made known in the flesh. You know the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Amazing. Amazing. Jesus, God with us. So the person who asked the question, what is God like? There's good news. You can know what God is like. You can read the Gospels. And every time you see Jesus interact, talk, behave, anytime you see Jesus do anything, you know that's what God's like. You see, that's what God would do. That's what God does. This is the beauty of this gospel, is it's telling us not just what a prophet did some years ago, it tells us who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. There are two things in this point about Jesus' works I want you to note this morning. His encounters and then his miracles. His encounters and then his miracles. His encounters are important because his encounters reveal to us who Jesus is. It reveals to us what, what type of man Jesus is. I say is because he's still alive, amen? amen. And, and so when we see, we, we learn things, but specifically this morning, of the many things we could look at, I want us to focus in on the, the, the things Jesus loves that's showed to us in the Gospel of John. And this countdown clock goes really fast. I, I was told it would go down from 45. I don't think that it started at 45, all right? So I'm just going to, we'll get through it, all right? Let's first of all, let's look at his encounters. What, what, did, what did Jesus love? Who, who, who is this man, Jesus? Well, if you read the Gospel of John, and I hope you understand, it's not in any way to be irreverent with the Scriptures. We're not going to read every single verse. I'm just going to bring to your attention the events that happen in his encounters. But we find the account of Jesus cleansing the temple. He cleanses the temple. And um, wh wh why does he do this? Well, his disciples, they, they notice Jesus doing this, and they're reminded of a psalm. You know the psalm, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. When we see Jesus cleansing the temples, and we see what the disciples saw in Jesus, they didn't say, wow, he really hates sin a lot. 
I mean, did you see him chase those people out? He must really hate sinners. No, they saw a love for the house. They, they saw a love for God's house more than they saw a hatred for that which was wrong. If I could say it this way, Jesus loved that which was right. That's why he hated that which was wrong. And when you love right, you hate right. A shepherd knows this. A shepherd loves his sheep, so he protects them by killing a wolf. He doesn't hate wolves, but he just loves his sheep. The disciples see this. Jesus loved truth. Jesus loved that which was right. He loved his father. He loved his father's house. He loved his father's children. And he protected them like a shepherd is supposed to. But John 2 teaches us that Jesus is not only a lover of truth, a lover of that which is right. Jesus is also, praise his name, he's a lover of sinners. In John chapter 3, we are introduced to a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee that came to Jesus by night. And there's some truth that could be because maybe he was embarrassed. But there's also a truth that could have been dangerous to go see Jesus. In light of what many of the Pharisees thought about our Lord. But whatever the reason, Nicodemus came to him by night and Jesus didn't shoo him away. He didn't say, I'm not going to meet with you. In his compassion and kindness, he talked to him and he told him the importance of being born again. And we learn from this that no matter how religious a person is, there is still a need to be born again. To have new life given to them, that they may be raised to walk in newness of life. Jesus didn't say that he had to be baptized. Jesus didn't say he had to be a church member. He said one must be born again. Why would Jesus tell him that? Because he loved him. He loved this religious man named Nicodemus. But John 4 tells us it's not only religious people Jesus loves. It's not only a wealthy religious men Jesus loves. There's the opposite found in John chapter 4. It's not a man, it's a woman, and she's not wealthy. She's likely uh, uh, poor, and she's not religious. She's rather immoral. She's been married uh, many times, and Jesus brings this out at, uh, as he speaks to her. In many ways, the woman at the well is the opposite end of the spectrum if we looked at it from a worldly perspective. No real relationships, likely looked down upon by those around her, ostracized by many in her society, but it did not matter what others thought of her. What mattered most in John chapter 4 is what did Jesus think of her. And we see in his relationship to her and her conversation with her that Jesus loved this woman. All the emotional scars that she must have had, all of the mental anguish, all the problems washed away meeting Jesus. And I want to encourage you this morning, mental anguish is real, emotional scars are real, people's opinions are real, but I want to encourage you that all your emotional scars, emotional anguish, what other people may think, all the problems in your life do not matter nearly to the Lord as much as you matter to the Lord. You see, you matter. Not what has happened to you, but you. Jesus gives us this testimony in John chapter 4. You see, the woman's experiences were not why Jesus must needs go through Samaria. The woman was the reason Jesus must needs go through Samaria. I hope you understand this morning the value you have in view of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, we find that Jesus loves sinners again. It's the story of the adulterous woman. It's a woman caught in adultery, and that's that's what it is, by the way. It's adultery. We live in a society and a world that wants to sanitize sin for some reason. Oh, uh... 
this, this, this man cheated on his wife. And I've said this to our church. You cheat at Uno. You, you cheat at Monopoly. And if you don't, you're lying. I'm just saying that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, real, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I just learned a lesson in Sunday school about not speaking ill of other people. And I, I just called the whole church liars. So anyway. But it's not cheating. It's not an affair. It's adultery. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Why, why is it a big deal of calling sin, sin? Or calling it what God calls it? Well, there's actually great blessing in dealing with sin as sin. Because if we deal with sin as sin, so will God. It doesn't say if we confess our mistakes, if, our, if we confess our cheating, if we confess our sin, what does God do? He forgives us of our, of our sin you see, if, if you would be honest and treat your sin the way God treats sin, the blessing is God will treat your sin the way he promises to treat sin. Amen. And I'm, I'm, great, I'm grateful for that. But this woman was caught in adultery. And as I said, sin is always sin. But the reason it's important here in John chapter 8 is because Jesus showed his love for her, but he also showed his authority to forgive sin. After asking if there's any that condemn her, of course, you know the story. She says, no, Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee. And let me tell you, friend, he had the authority to say that. He had the authority to say, neither do I condemn thee. And it matter. Did she deserve it? No. But then again, neither do we. Grace wouldn't be grace and mercy wouldn't be mercy. And so through his encounters, we see who he is. At least I, I hope that you have. Just briefly, Jesus is a lover of truth. He's a lover of sinners. But not only do we see who he is through his encounters, through his miracles, we see what he can do. I'm grateful that who Jesus is. But let me tell you what I'm also grateful for. I'm grateful for what he can do. His miracles teach us what he can do. Back in John chapter 2, Jesus attended a wedding. You're familiar with the story. They ran out of wine. And Jesus does a miracle. He changes the water into wine. Now, we don't know how he did it. We don't know if he touched it or if he spoke it. We don't know how, but we know when he did it. He did it in the middle of obedience. The servants were obeying his word, and by the time it gets to the table, it's been turned into wine. But what is, this, what is the point of this? Have you ever thought about this? What, what is the significance of us knowing that Jesus turned water into wine? Is it just to teach us that he's nice? That, that, that he has some empathy towards hosts that ran out of something? No, we're informed by John chapter 20. We remember, wait, this was written that I would know that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, I could have life through His name. So what is it about this miracle that informs us about that for a sinner believing on Christ? I believe that one of the things is this. You learn in John chapter 2 that Jesus has the power to change things. You see, you, you, you read about a conversion in John chapter 2. Jesus takes something that is this and He makes it that. And only he can do that. Church can't do that. Baptistry waters can't do that. But Jesus can do that. Jesus has the power to change things. And not only does he have the power to change things, he does it in such a drastic way that the people can tell the difference. They said, wow, this, 
This is good stuff. It's no different. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, the Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. It just simply means he's a new creation. Well, here's the question. Who's doing the creating? The pastor? No. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Praise God for that. All things are become new. You see, in reality, when a person is lost, when a person is unsaved, it is not their circumstances that need to change. It is not their job or career that needs to change. It's not their bank account that needs to change. They need to change. The heart needs to change. I've said this before, and I'm sure you've heard it before. The, the prayer, I, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. Let me tell you something. I'm not trying to be sarcastic or funny, and I don't mean to be uh, uh, rude either. But a sinner asking Jesus to come into the heart is, is, is not exactly how things are working there. You see, our hearts, apart from Christ, are wicked. They're deceitful. And if I could say this nicely, that's not where Jesus wants to live. Jesus, I want you to come into my heart. Let me tell you the response, if I could say it this way. If Jesus could speak to you uh, in, in one succinct sentence based on the truth in his word, he would say this. No, 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 I don't want to live in your heart. I want to change your heart. I want to give you a new heart. I want to change your heart so that your desires change, that your behavior change, that what comes out of your mouth changes. Because we know out of abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You see, it's not the environment that needs to change. You need to change. The individual, the heart, the, the person needs to change. And so a person who is lost and a person who knows I need to be saved, they read John chapter 2 and they see the power of conversion that Jesus has. And I pray it gives you hope. The question is not, have you been religious? Have you joined a church? The question is, have you ever been converted? And after conversion, can people tell the difference? Can people see the difference? In John chapter 4, we read about the healing of the nobleman's son. And this is a, a great text because it teaches us something about our Lord. And again, I, I hope you don't mind me be, re, re, uh, telling you about the stories instead of reading all of the details here. Just for time's sake, we're, we're moving through it. But one of the things that you learn in the, the healing of this noble man's son is that Jesus was not physically there. But do you know why? He did not have to be physically there to do what he did. Amen? His, his promise, thy son liveth, his promise that Jesus worked, shows us in John chapter 4 that he doesn't have to be physically there. Now, why would that encourage us? Well, because right now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, he's promised to meet with us. We're two or three gathered. He's there in our midst. But I want you to know, just because you can't see Jesus today, it doesn't mean that he can't do something in your life today. It doesn't mean he can't change your life today. The blessing is that Jesus is still able to save. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a crippled man by the pool. 38 years. 38 years. Immediately changed with one sentence. Arise. Take up thy bed and walk. Now, I have to tell you something. If, if I went up to a crippled person today and I said, hey, why don't you get up and walk? I might be accused of making fun of them. It would be cruelty for one of us to go up to a crippled man and say, hey, why don't you get up and walk? But there was no cruelty here. Because Jesus can say, 
to a crippled man, arise, get up and walk. Jesus can say to a dead man, live. You see, Jesus can tell a blind man to look and a deaf man to hear and women too, praise the Lord for that. But I want you to know that the truth here is that Jesus did this and the change was immediate. Immediately. Why does that matter for us? Because there's other promises in scriptures. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will eventually be saved. That's not quite how the verse reads, amen? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. When? Right now. Today. And I want to tell you, sinners, and any, every saved person here will amen this. Or le- lehi it, as Brother Chris Gable taught me. Every, every saved person here will, 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 will amen this. That sinners need that kind of immediate change. We need the immediate kind of rescue that only Jesus can provide. And I think it'd be good for us as Christians to get back to remembering that's what the gospel is. It is good news for those that need to be rescued. I think one of the reasons we don't evangelize like we ought to is because we don't understand the need like we ought to. We forget this is a rescue. They need need deliver. They need salvation. But Jesus, praise his name. He gives a meeting. He has the power of conversion. He's, he's able to save from where he is right now, and it is immediate. But this text I'd like you to look at. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, because I want you to see something <clears throat> about the miracle Jesus does here. John chapter 6. Join me, please, in verse 5. John 6, verse 5. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. I I love that, don't you? Jesus wasn't really asking him, Philip, what are we going to do? No, he was was doing it to test him. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He wanted to see where where, uh, they were on this. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. Let me just say real quick to your church, corporately here, Jesus is about to make enough to feed everybody. He had the ability to put it into their laps, but he chose to use his disciples. Amen? It is a privilege to be part of the Lord's work in other people's lives. So the disciples distributed, verse 12, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore, they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with fragments above the, excuse me, of the five barley loaves, which remained. And if you mark in your Bible, you might want to mark this adjective phrase, over and above unto them that had eaten. Now, let's walk through this quickly. Did Jesus know how much was needed? Of course he did. Never one time in his life did Jesus do the wrong thing. Amen? Amen. Jesus never looked at his disciples and said, you know, I shouldn't have said that. 
you know, you know what? We went the wrong way. Never happened. So this is not some sort of mistake on Jesus' part. Oh, we made too much. We, 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 we made, I made too much food. No, it's intentional. So we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would the Lord want us to know and then have it recorded for our understanding about who Jesus is, that he not only makes enough, he makes us sufficient, he goes over and above. Why would we need to know that? Well, because it's a picture of what Jesus still does in lives today. You see, Jesus didn't provide just enough. He went over and above. But isn't that just like him? Isn't that just like something that the Lord would do? He's not going to do just enough to get by. He provides over and above. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. In Luke 6, verse 38, Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. In Psalm 23, verse 5, the psalmist about the Lord says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Ephesians 3, 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. He's able. He's able to do that. You see, living for Christ is so much more than just going to church. There is so much more to living for Christ than that. Why? It's because of what he's put into us. I mean, just think of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. What a privilege. It is a wonderful life to be a Christian. And when a person turns to Christ in repentant faith, and they put that faith in Jesus Christ, they learn that there is so much more to the Christian life, and it is a wonderful life. Our Lord able to do over and above. Why does that matter? Because he wants you to know what he... And listen, this is not some Joel Osteen, nice, you know, uh, prosperity talk. This is Bible. This is who Jesus is. He's able to do over and above what we ask or think. That's who you serve. Don't let that excite you or anything. Amen? (laughs) All right, not only that, you want to see an example of... Getting to experience something over and above. In John chapter 6, we find out that Peter walked on water. Now think about that. Can we just think about that for just a second? Jesus is not the only one that walked on water. Peter walked on water. And obviously to think that Peter could somehow be praised for that would be crazy. Amen. Peter, how'd you do that? Well, obviously it wasn't Peter. But it was the Lord enabling Peter. But can we stop and just think about that? And I'm sure there are some Christians right here that already have things going in their mind, looking back at experiences in their life that said, I never would have been able to do that had it not been for the Lord. I would not have been able to experience that if it hadn't been for the Lord. I wouldn't have been able to endure that if it hadn't been for the Lord. I wouldn't have gone through that if it hadn't been for the Lord. And I wouldn't have been able to experience the great blessings had it not been for the Lord. You see, it's not just enduring through trials. Christians are a unique group in that we get to experience blessings that we just, you just can't explain apart from God did that. And I, and I know that there's a lesson here about faith and Peter taking his eyes off Christ, but can we just recognize that for a little bit there, Peter's obedience enabled him to do something he never should have been able to do. This is similar to the church at Corinth where Paul says, I do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed upon them. 
God's riches at Christ's expense. No, that's not what the grace there is talking about. What Paul's going to say to the church at Corinth is that the churches of Macedonia, they were able to do things they shouldn't have been able to do because of the grace of God, the influence of God in their lives. Oh, it is wonderful to be a Christian. In John 7, we see that there's a man born blind from birth. I love his testimony. (laughs) Here's what I know. I was blind, but now I see. And anyone who's saved can give a testimony that, that, that simple. Amen? In John chapter 11, we see the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Let me tell you, when Paul talks about attaining re- the power of the resurrection, he's not talking about understanding what happened to Jesus. He's saying that, that we have opportunity to have that displayed in our life. And there's no better place for the power of the resurrection to be, displayed, to be displayed in a person's life than at conversion, at salvation. And I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you're not saved or you don't know that you're saved, you're, you, you say, you know, I'm not really sure. I want to encourage you with something. It doesn't take resurrection power to come to church. It, just look around. There are churches that are, are so-called churches or religious buildings that are packed out every, every week. It doesn't take the power of the resurrection to give somebody a card to, sh- to show your kindness. But it does take the power of the resurrection to love like you're supposed to love. To forgive like you're supposed to forgive. To, instead of falling short of the glory of God, to be able to bring Him glory with your life. That takes the power of the resurrection. And it takes the power of the resurrection to change a sinner and bring them out of the kingdom of darkness and put them into the kingdom of light. And Jesus reveals that his power that he has, he, he gave to somebody else, to Lazarus. Isn't that a blessing? Jesus, he's, he raised himself from the dead. That's power right there. But Jesus used that authority and that power to Lazarus. And I wish we had time to go into this story. It's a, it's a, it's a great account of the Lord's power. The disciples say, you know, Lord, if he's resting, it's good for him to rest. And then... A very relatable verse for me. Then Jesus said plainly, he's dead. Right? Like, I'm glad for that, amen? I need the Lord to make things plain for me sometimes. Uh, but they go, and he's dead. This is a problem. People are weeping. and Not a problem for Jesus. Jesus displays in John chapter 11 his power, his authority. In John chapter 21, we don't have time to go there. If you're taking notes, you can just reference it. There's this great catch of fish. The, the idea here is this, is are you aware of what Jesus, not just who Jesus is, but what he can do? What he can do. Those are the works. Secondly, I want us to see the, the word as the red numbers flash. We're going to go quickly, all right? The word. Back in our text, the, the, back in John 20, it says these, we focused on that, but these, and then this, this word, it says are written. Amen? These are written. Why did it have to be written? Why did God want it recorded? We know that Jesus is the living word, but right now we're talking about the written word. These are written. The Holy Spirit moved him to write it down. Why would he need to, be write, write, why would he need to write it down? Well, he wrote it down so that it can be read, it can be taught, and that it can be preached. 
In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a bad condition. You hear what Paul said to the saints at Rome? The way of peace. The way of peace have they not known. But if you go to Romans chapter 10, verse 13, there's hope for those in the condition of Romans chapter 3. Because Romans chapter 10 says in verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a what? A preacher. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of what? Of peace. You see, in Romans 3, the way of peace have they not known. Christians have the privilege of preaching the gospel of peace. That we, we, we are ambassadors for Christ. We have this message that we go out and we can say, you in your lost condition, you as a sinner who's transgressed against God, can be reconciled to God, and you who, were, who are now at enmity with God can find peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was it written? It was written to be preached, to be taught, to be shared, but mainly... To be believed. In Romans 10 verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by what? The word of God. What is faith? Faith is simply this. Trusting. That's it. It's, it's believing somebody. Well why is faith so closely tied to the scriptures? Because the scriptures are not my word. It's God's word. And you can trust God's word. So this faith, why is it written? Why does the word matter? That brings us to our third point. We've seen the works of Jesus Christ. We've seen who he is. We've seen what he can do. We've seen why it needed to be written down so that it could be preached and that it would be believed. But this is the why in application. If back in our text, if you remember, it said in in John chapter 20... It said, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. That believing is the faith there. If you would turn and we'll close with this text. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. You see, believing has, there's a lot in that. Believing word. Because a lot of people put faith in a lot of things. But there is a specific faith and a specific one that causes lives to be changed. And it is faith, what John says, in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You see, believing in Him, that has a whole different result than just believing in church. Or or believing in religion. Listen, religion can't forgive sins. Church can't forgive sins. God can. And God will through Jesus Christ. 
This preaching here, Paul's giving his testimony. He says what, what he did. He sums it up in verse 21. He was testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. He didn't have one message for the Jews and a different message for the Greeks. What was his message? Repentance from sin. You see that? Is that what it says? What it says is repentance toward God. And faith. Faith toward what? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might think I'm being semant- using semantics here. It's not semantics. It's Bible. When you find the New Testament being turned from your iniquities, here's what it says. God sent his son to bless you in turning every one of you from your iniquities. Listen, if you could turn from your sin, you wouldn't need Jesus. All that would be was God say, turn from your sin. Now, I know the Old Testament stories, but praise the Lord, we're in the New Testament. Amen. And we're not just putting our sins over a year. We're having our sins taken care of forever. Praise the Lord for that. And what it says is God sent his son to bless you and turning every one of you from your iniquities. I need him to turn me. Now listen closely. What is repentance? Repentance. It's a change of mind. It's a change of direction. But what Paul preached, and by the way, he says it again in Acts 26 verse 20. He said, I showed first unto them... What what did he say? That they should repent and what? Turn to God and do works meet for repentance. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. How that they turn to God from idols. You can't turn east without turning from the west. Amen? You can't turn to God and not turn from sin. But you see, religion says, change your life. Religion says, stop sinning. Religion says, turn over a new leaf. The gospel says, you can't. You can't do that. But one turn to Christ is far more powerful, infinitely more powerful than a dozen turns from your bad habits. Listen, they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There was intention and they knew where they were headed. They knew where they were going. This is the believing John's talking about. This is the repentant faith. It's all tied together. It's not a two-step process. If you, if you follow these simple steps, you'll be saved. That may work on a diet plan. Not that I would know from personal experience, all right? But, but the salvation isn't a two-step process. It is a one-turn process. And it's to God. It's to God. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you're in bondage to sin. But have you seen Jesus today? Have you seen who he is? That he not only is a lover of truth and right, he's a lover of sinners. But not only who he is, what he can do. He converts things. He has the power. He has the power to do it from where he's at right now. He has the power to do it immediately. You need that if you're not saved. And I will tell you, I pray that you have seen Jesus clear enough I pray that he was lifted high enough today that he was raised above all the excuses that one may have to not turn to Christ that all the the people in your life that may be causing you distraction that if you look just above them you look at Christ you you won't have any more distractions you see Christ as he is he's easy to run to he's easy to flee to He's able to save. He's able to save. This is the why. This is why it was written. 
Not to tell you to clean up your life, but to tell you to turn to Christ. Turn to God. Do you believe? Do you want life? Better yet, do you want over and above life? Do you want life more abundant? You can have it through Jesus Christ. Have you believed? Church, you're saved, you're a Christian. Were you reminded today what Christ has done for you? I pray that you were. And I pray that gratitude is motivation to serve Him better this week. To show, what, to show the Lehigh Valley what over and above life looks like.